can't we be humble like the good lord say he promised to exalt us but no is the way how men be so greedy when there's so much left That's Billy Preston's 1971 recording with uh, co-production help from George Harrison of That's the Way God Planned It. And uh, it uh, was also uh, filmed live at the concert for Bangladesh in 1971, which is absolutely an inspired piece of uh, on-site and unscripted spiritual music of the most inspirational type. The cast is number 347, entitled Perpetual Motion. I'll explain the title shortly. And is dedicated, this cast, to my old friend, my faithful and beloved friend, uh, Stephen M. Burzen. And um, it comes from the experience I've recently had, which I've described in a little bit of detail, the last few casts of... um, a long time and once very close friend 55 years ago who died um, unexpectedly recently at at whose funeral Stephen and I and others um, uh, attended, uh, were present, I should say. And um, the uh, tremendous regret I have that I was not actually there, did not know, but nevertheless was not there earlier when uh, our friend was uh, in her last period of life. Uh, I wished in particular that I could have been there to uh, talk to her about her views, ask her her understanding, and try to offer Christian hope of resurrection and eternal life in light of God's unconditional uh, mercy and love uh, in a way that might have been a comfort to her. And what struck me was it wasn't, uh, she, she was connected to a very good church, a very good Episcopal church, but it didn't occur to her, uh, so far as I know, to reach out directly at a point of need, at least in recent times. It hadn't occurred, it didn't, because she told me once that she was living near a church she valued and had a connection with historically, but it did not occur. She was sort of um, absent, uh, absent on leave. She, she just didn't go. And what I thought to myself is, what might have uh, made the difference? And I'm not thereby pointing figures at any institution whatsoever because the the issue was hers, what she thought. And uh, I thought to myself, part of her sort of indifference, or that me that's not quite the word, her not feeling that she might um, voluntarily turn in that direction for some hope and um, some encouragement and some uh, words of eternal life, if I can use the prayer book expression, 
Why did she not do that? Well, that something it hadn't connected. Something something was wrong there. And that something was that is that is to say, she did not turn in that direction. I'm sure she turned in other directions, but not in that direction. And that made me reflect: uh, what could change the profile of the church in our world? We spend a lot of time bemoaning, at least in the formal, sort of mainstream Protestant church and and other. Uh, communions, we um, bemoan the secularization of the world and the fact that the linchpin and anchor of unified uh, belovedness and love and hope that has been given through the Christian church to countries such as America, because it has, is now um, increasingly uh, dispersed and diffuse. And um, there's not a common consensus, or at least that's what the narrative is. It's the narrative overstates it, but there's some real truth in it. What's happened? What What is missing? And so people think, well, if we... <clears throat> It just lined ourselves up more with what people say they want or say they think, then then we'd be, be all right. But I, I don't take that line myself. That may be part of it, but I, I think the church has a countercultural message of eternal life that is beyond and above and transcends this world's values and ideas. So you know I think that, but that, that I really do. That's the core. And um, what might happen that could alter the position of, <clears throat> say, the Christian church or movement in our world, our country, that would make a difference. And that's what I really want to talk about briefly. It's called Perpetual Motion, this cast number 347, because um, it's about St. Perpetua. Now, um, my friend Steve, Stephen, uh, to whom this cast is dedicated, uh, when I was up in New York, lent me a remarkable book by Mary Beard, who is a Cambridge University classics professor, who's written a popular <clears throat> and successful book entitled SPQR, Senatus Populusque Romanus, but it's SPQR, about the <clears throat> history of the Roman Empire, em the history of the Roman Empire. And while I <clears throat> take a less secular line and feel her, although the book is excellent, I feel that her treatment of Christianity and Christianity's um, internal, ultimately decisive effect on Imperial Rome and its culture, um, I feel she misses, she doesn't really give uh, uh, enough um, credit to that which is really both true and good about that Christianity which undermined so-called classical, end of quote, or many Greco-Roman values and ideas and perspectives. I don't think it's that positive, her view. It's a little bit of a kind of 21st century um, uh, Edward Gibbon uh, view of uh, the Christian element in the history of Rome, but uh, it's a very good book. And um, there's one particular thing that absolutely, um, utterly enthralled me, and it's the point of the podcast, and that's why I dedicated it to Stephen. The, um, she uh, dwells on the martyrdom of St. Perpetua and St. Perpetua's servant girl or woman, St. Felicitas, in the year 203 AD under the uh, Emperor Septimus, Septimius Severus, and um, she deals with it because it's so counterintuitive. It's really the exemplification of what um, Billy Preston sang when he said, uh, he promised to exalt us, but low is the way, because what happened is a, a, a personage, a, a, a development that you might call low, was so shocking and so <clears throat> completely out of the norm and so um, really... Um, uh, like an earthquake uh, in its psychic 
um, and contagious uh, observation by people that it changed forever the landscape of Christianity, the Christian movement in North Africa, and ultimately was one of, not the only one, but one of a number of similar events that caused North Africa in its Roman um, imperial hegemony to... Um, to, to ultimately become Christian. Now, I've been to the place where St. Uh, Perpetua and St. Felicitas, together with six catechumens, and I think one kind of ringer who came in at the last moment named Saturnus. I've been to the exact spot, and Mary and I took a group there. It's very, very moving. Because Tunisia is a... It's outside of Tunis, what is called Carthage. Because Tunisia is a... Um, is a Muslim country. The uh, the great basilica that was built in honor of St. Perpetua, like a cathedral. I believe it's either a museum or a mosque, but I know it's not a working church, as they say in those countries. And um, it's uh, so the place is not like, say, Lydia's stream in uh, in Greece uh, outside of Philippi, which is really a Christian shrine of the highest magnitude of moved e- emotional power. It's really just a kind of a grubby ancient stadium that's not very well preserved and the signage is bad. But there it is. That's where it happened. And what happened that Mary Beard talks about so strikingly, something happened there that is really the key to a return of our world to the understanding that there is a... Um, there is a transcendent meaning, a transcendent meaning underneath creation that is in the hands of, of, of an outside or external God. Um, mysterious, yes, but seen in the person of Christ in a way that, and in the history of the Bible and the, the Israel and then uh, the coming of the Messiah as we see it, that is extraordinarily um, fructifying uh, for um, the rebirth of uh, a Christian appeal. It has nothing to do with being progressive in such a way that people say, okay, yeah, the church is, I guess, not too bad, or um, something that is purely words and assertions, theological assertions. These uh, St. Perpetua put her, as it were, money where her mouth is to say the least. Let me just say a little bit about her. She was only 22. Uh, this event took place in the year 203. It's extremely well documented, A.D. Um, and what is so powerful about it is the um, account, uh, really a diary, you might say, <clears throat> a diary with dreams, kind of a journal that um, that uh, uh, Perpetua, at age 22, kept in prison. She uh, gave an account of her trial, then an account of her imprisonment, especially the terrible pain she had. She had a baby with her, her own little baby. And uh, the baby was taken away earlier in her imprisonment, and she had been nursing. And she, her breasts became so painful, it, intolerable chronic pain based upon the fact that they took the baby right in the middle of her nursing of her uh, beautiful little child and uh, she was in intolerable pain and she talks about that and she uh, she was spared the pain at the end because a, a someone bribed a guard who did in fact have compassion and they moved um, uh, Perpetua and uh, her servant maid um, Felicitas to a different section of the prison where she was able to have the baby back and she nursed until the day she was taken to the arena to be killed by wild beasts. I'm more about that later. But this uh, kind of journal of uh, this 22-year-old uh, single mother, we know nothing about her her husband or the father of the child. We do know a lot about her father, however. And the that is to say a, a um, perpetuous father. And this journal is unique in classical literature. It is the only um, record of its kind, you would call it a historic journal, that has entirely been passed down in full without any uh, embellishments by a female. 
it is unique. It's a little like um, Catherine Parr's Lamentation of a Sinner, a almost unique uh, first <coughs> devotional book written entirely by a woman, Catherine Parr, during the early years of the Protestant Reformation in England. But this is the same. This is similar to it, this remarkable um, uh, account by St. Perpetua. And you can get it, NPR of all entities. Uh, look it up under NPR, St. Perpetua, and you'll see a really nicely graphed out, typed out, very legible and accessible, complete transcription of the um, St. Perpetua's uh, diary that she wrote. And as she was going to be uh, judicially executed and f by wild beasts, she handed what she had written to someone uh, out who was not being executed, and she gave it to this person, and that person, probably a man, but... Um, we don't know, then observed in full the specific mechanics and horrible details of uh, the grisly death that was uh, that uh, Perpetua and the other six plus Felicitas and Saturnus underwent. Shocking. And uh, so we have what happened after the uh, this remarkable diary, mostly of dreams, and um, this terrible pain that she had uh, because the baby, the nursing child, was taken away from her for two or three days, and then her deep sense that Jesus Christ was with her, and her concluding dream that she was in fact fighting the devil. This was not just kind of a witnessing to Jesus, but it was an actual fighting of the, his satanic majesty that took the form of, a, of what she regarded as an Egyptian person, a sort of gigantic Egyptian person who she regarded in her final dream as the devil. It's, it's an extraordinary document. You must read it. The diary or journal of St. Perpetua, together with the horrible account. I used to think that being fed to the lions was one thing, and it certainly, you see it in the sign of the cross by um, Cecil B. DeMille, but oh, it wasn't. It's, it's much worse. It was the, the way they planned it, the way they accomplished it, and the way it got played out specifically on this wonderful, lovely, courageous, one-of-a-kind young single mother, an African, North African single mother. The, the way it was visited, her death upon her, the details of it are so shocking. It's like, um, it's like reading, I mean, it's, just, it's as horrible as it can possibly be. It, it's, it's really gratuitously sadistic and just awful. And now I see what the early Christians were, were really facing and how it was actually meted out. You must read it. But that changed everything. It, as I said, it's like the martyrdom of Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley. It changed everything. When someone of a woman, a young woman, uh, who'd just been, been, uh, been nursing, and when uh, poor uh, Felicitas, who'd also just had a baby, and she was dripping with milk in her front, and as the two of them came into the arena, which normally it was a sort of a festive day, kind of a George Washington's birthday, it was the birthday of the emperor, and when she came came in having refused to recant, and she said, Christiana sum, that is, I am a Christian. She signed the dotted line of her execution, but the crowd did not expect, they were used to seeing um, uh, condemned, uh, condemned felons, almost all of whom were male, all of whom were male at that time in that setting, or gladiators who were sort of, quote, slaves, who were kind of hoping to not get killed this time, <clears throat> maybe make a tip or so, and uh, possibly uh, some other people, you know, captives or something like that. But to see one of their own, uh, a woman who was a young single mother and a woman who had just had a baby like a day before, two days before, the crowd shuddered. And and when it happened, the, the crowd took pity on her at the end in a way that you'll see, but it's it's not 
<laughs> didn't have to much pity in my book. Um, but the crowd shuddered, and that's what we need today. I know that's strong. But if, if the Archbishop of Canterbury or someone like him, if a major figure could say to the world on whatever basis or for whatever reason, no, I'm sorry, as a Christian, I do not accept this, or as a Christian, I say no, or as a Christian, I cannot say yes, or as a Christian, I must demure. And, uh, and if that person were... Um, were killed or taken away by a crowd and, and hung from a lamppost or burned uh, alive or what happened to Savigny, Covigny, uh, sorry, Coligny in um, 1572, thrown out of a balcony. Uh, if something like that happened to a person who'd made a conscious uh, decision like the seven bishops uh, in uh, 1680s against uh, James II, whose courage in going to the Tower of London, all of them created uh, such a positive reaction that the Church of England recovered massively its popular support, massively its popular support in England uh, for the uh, coming of the Protestant King William of Orange or the, uh, as I said, the martyrs of the English Reformation or uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, under the Nazis or George Bell, or, and he was not a martyr, but um, uh, Niemöller, et cetera, et cetera. The, these people change everything when they're willing to go to to the stake for their convictions. And that's what we need, and that's what would change it. So I'm very hopeful about the future, but I'm, uh, I, I know that it's going to take someone's blood as it took St. Perpetua's blood. And that is the hope that we have. And in, in light of someone, uh, a person, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, um, you, anything you want to say, a soul, a human soul willing to die for the sake of the gospel as they understand it, this will be the change agent that will rebirth the church. And it won't be some either ideological, um, what I think is posturing, but let's just say ideological um, um, decision, or nor will it be uh, just louder uh, affirmations uh, from the pulpit or from wherever you want to say it. It'll be someone who's willing to die. And that's why I'm calling this. What the church needs is perpetual motion. And here's a little bit more of our wonderful friend, Billy Preston. <laughs> 